The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. If someone is listening to this and those questions I just asked, what do you like about your work and you can't come up with a single thing past or present that you like at work? That is a strong leading indicator that you are in burnout. Hello and welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Stephanie Slocum, who is a structural engineer licensed as a PE in multiple states and is the founder and CEO of Engineers Rising LLC, where her focus is helping women in engineering and technology create fulfilling careers on their terms. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thrilled to be here, Aaron. Thanks for having me. So what made you decide to become an engineer? Well, if you are waiting for the story of the little kid that knew they always wanted to be an engineer, this is this is not <laughs> this Good. is not for you. That's not Good. my we story. We get that story all the time. Yeah. Let's hear so a different I'm one. Gonna, we'll get that out of the way. Uh, <laughs> that that uh, that that is, was not is not my story. So I was fortunate enough to be born to two scientist parents. Um, and so I was definitely encouraged to explore all sorts of things. So math, science, I was very, uh, I was a musician uh, for a while uh, and just explore whatever was interesting to me. Uh, so I got to, to you know, the, the point in life where we're like, okay, you have to decide at the age of, you know, 16, 17, what you're going to major in in college and that's what you're going to do for the rest of your life. So no pressure there. Right. That's not scary. Nope, not at all. Uh, and so I'm like, okay, well, I will major in biochemistry. At that time, biomedical things weren't a thing yet. Like most colleges didn't even have biomedical anything as a major. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to start in biochem and I'll, I'll go from there. And then I took my first college chemistry class and it was terrible and boring. And I'm like, no, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Um, so I tried a couple other different majors. I tried um, computer engineering, uh, where I think I fell asleep on one of the exams because that wasn't the wasn't for in me. The exam, I could see oh, the lecture. The exam. In the exam, that's pretty. Yeah, bad. it was in one of those gigantic like forum style halls. Mm. That like, even if I think about it now, I'm like starting to get a little sleepy. Um, so I tried that, that as a major. I tried a couple other engineering sorts of, uh, I explored a couple other engineering things because I've always been very practical. So like the theoretical side of this, of STEM, I didn't really want to have anything to do with. I wanted things you could apply. Uh, so one day uh, I had some friends that were in calculus and physics with me and we went to play tennis that's one of the another one of those random things that i i do uh, and one of my friends showed up sh coming straight from class with this little model so if you can imagine it's like this little balsa wood model with like trees and buildings and little people and grass and i look at this model and i look at him and i'm like i know you're an engineer what engineering major do you get to do that in and he's like architectural engineering and so that was the first time i'd ever heard of that major and I took one class and I was 
hooked. Nice. And that is how I came to be the type of engineer uh, that I came to be. Now, you're a structural engineer, and we haven't had many structural engineers on the show. I, maybe one ever okay. before. Most of the engineers we have on are mechanical engineers, and we're dealing with, you know, uh, we measure in thousands of an inch. And uh, I, I would love to hear a little bit more about structural engineering. Okay. Um, can you give us just a kind of a quick summary of what is a structural engineer? What does he or she do? What kind of projects do you work on, et cetera? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. So the structural engineers are the people that design the parts of the building or infrastructure that actually makes the infrastructure stand up. So if you think of an analogy of your body, that you have bones in your body that your skin and muscles and hair and everything else is attached to, the structural engineers are the ones that design those bones and make sure they are solid. Um, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, you only hear about structural engineers when there's a catastrophic failure and something happens, uh, as we have seen recently with the situation down in Miami. Um, and, and so the structural engineers really are responsible for a lot of the life and safety of the, the building occupants because we, you know, we have building codes, uh, we design to those building codes. Uh, we know about things like climate change and, and how do you make sure you design the building so it will stand up for a long time. Uh, and some structural engineers, so I focused entirely on buildings in my engineering, in the engineering part of my career. There are structural engineers that design the parts of spaceships that go up into space and make sure that the, you know, the pieces that need to burn off do and the pieces that don't need to burn off going through the atmosphere don't. There are structural engineers that design bridges and infrastructure and pipes for utilities. Uh, there, there's structural engineers all over the place and in all sorts of different, uh, different areas. Uh, but it's a, there's a lot of material science involved. Uh, so lots of stress and strain, which I think every engineer, mechanical engineers or otherwise, you know, have have had uh, some of that involved with when uh, when you first learn to become an engineer. Um, the other interesting thing about structural engineering, I think, is it tends to be uh, one of the engineering disciplines that is often at the intersection of things. So like we have to design our projects and make sure that uh, you know, not only other engineering consultants can understand that, but the owner understands and the contractor un can take our drawings and then go go build the thing. Um, and so that there, depending on where you are in mechanical engineering, I do think there is some similarities there uh, between, you know, you're designing this thing and then you have to communicate to other people that don't necessarily have your expertise how to build it so it's safe and so it, you know, meets all the criteria. Um, but it's a, one of my favorite things that, that kind of helped me know that was the right place for me and might help some of your listeners if you're considering a career in structural engineering is the fact that I can drive by buildings I designed 20 plus years ago and they're standing there and I'd be like, I designed that. And that building's probably gonna be there when I'm gone unless someone decides to demolish it and build something new. That's a pretty uh, that's cool perspective. Really cool. Yeah. Really, really cool because a lot of the engineering disciplines, you're like, okay, I'm designing an app and there's going to be a new app next week, right? Um, whereas uh, 
structural engineering, it's like you're designing something that's going to stand for a very, very, very long time that you'll always be able to go back to and be like, yeah, I did that. That's very cool, right? A lot of the things we design, at least earlier in the company work, like consumer products, you know, maybe it's an iPhone case or a medical device or something like that. And those are around for two, three, maybe four years, and then they get scrapped and customers buy a new one. So that's a very cool perspective to have, to be able to look at your work 20, 30, 50 years from now and see it's still still there. Um, uh, so most of the buildings you've worked on, they've been what, like uh, uh, schools and hospitals and uh, things like that. Is that right? Yeah, that's accurate. So uh, I worked on a lot of low, mid-rise, what we would call commercial building projects. Um, so hospitals, schools, um, a lot of higher education buildings as well. So okay. uh, those are cool because it's not, you know, you think of classroom type buildings, uh, but we also got to design like structural engineering labs, which it's cool to be a structural. I mean, imagine being a mechanical engineer, designing the mechanical engineering lab. Right. That the students yeah. get to learn in. Like, that's a pretty, pretty cool thing. Uh, I worked on a forensic medical facility uh, for uh, for the state of Maryland in this case, uh, where if there was any, like, suspicious deaths, that's where they took the cadavers to see. Oh, interesting. You know, do the testing and, and see what, you know, what was the cause of death. Yeah, yeah. Um, BSL-4 facilities, which is where they do all the testing with like super infectious disease stuff. Um, I had my hands in designing a building that had some of that. So it's really cool because you're like, does you have your expertise and how you design it, but then you also get to learn all the different kinds of buildings because there's different criteria for if you're designing a medical facility or a hospital versus if you're designing a classroom building versus if you are designing a K K through 12 schools. I mean, heck, even K through 12 schools have changed tremendously in how you design them pre 9-11. Interesting. Um, so one of the things I'm, I'm curious about is quoting a project like that. I, I do a lot of quoting myself and uh, we're quoting projects that are, you know, anywhere from tens of thousands into maybe the millions of dollars projects. But for the kind of buildings that you're talking about, I'm, I'm guessing these are tens of millions, if not, you know, hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars. What is the quoting process like for that? Does it take just like months and months to quote something like this? Do you get paid to quote it? Or is it just a bid that you as the firm spend your time, you know, uh, on spec basically that hoping you'll get the job? How does that work? So uh, in my case, it was mostly the last one you said in that um, a lot of different firms are competing, like they put together a fee to complete the project. So someone puts out a scope of work for here's the project, here's about how many square foot it's going to be, here's what we think maybe the construction cost will be for square f- per square foot in some cases. Um, and if you've been in business for any length of time, uh, you've, you've done you know different types of buildings and can generally estimate what you're going to need to do, how many man hours it's going to take to complete that project. Uh, And so you put together a proposal. Uh, A number of firms will submit proposals on the work. Uh, And then depending on the owner. So, for example, if it's like a, a hospital or university, usually that's a very, very, very educated owner that may even have their own facilities people that are like watching the process. Um, some of them will be architects or, or people with a lot of expertise in how you build buildings. 
um, for them, the maintenance of the building, the energy that goes into the building is one of their biggest costs. So they have a, a really good reason to be very involved in that process. Um, and so they'll review, um, sometimes you'll go through multiple interview stages where like the team that's submitting will come and present, like here's our vision for the building, all of those sorts of things. Usually those teams are led by uh, architects. Sometimes they're led by contractors, it just depends. Uh, and so then like me as a structural engineer would kind of fall under those groups of people uh, as well as like mechanical engineers for buildings, plumbing people, electrical people, specialty equipment people, all of those people. And so he would bring all those people uh, to the interviews uh, as needed. They would talk, you know, to give the presentation uh, and then the project would be awarded. Um, some of these are really public projects. So as you would imagine with any project being built or funded by the government, um, that tends to be a pretty transparent uh, process for, for how this works to make sure everything's you know, fair and all those sorts of things. Um, some of the, the private groups, it's very transparent, others <laughs> not so much. So like every, I would say the process is generally the same in terms of you are, you know, putting together a scope of work for man hours and you know, based on the deadlines you think you will have for the project, largely based on square footage and construction costs. Um, but then you typically are not paid for that business development side of and, it. And how long does that take? Is that like a week or a month or multiple months? It really depends because when you're, when you're getting into the third and fourth interview cycle, that will take multiple months. Wow. I would say it is not unusual. So if you're talking like a sub $10 million building project, which would be a really, really small building project. So like if you were to go to your local university and look around, most of those buildings, are, you're talking more towards 40 to 60 million for like the mid-sized normal buildings. And if you're talking something really big, or something really tall or something with a lot of specialty equipment in like any of the STEM labs, it's going to be double that. Wow. Um, and so uh, de not surprisingly, the larger the project is, the longer it takes to go through this process. So, you know, six to 12 months, isn't it wow. uncommon? So you can have a lot of um, yeah. costs sunk into this before you know one way or the other, what, whether you're going to get it. Right. And, approximately, I mean, and this, this number varies, but there are groups that track this, uh, that for this industry, often, you know, you have 40% of your proposals are accepted-ish. Interesting. Um, okay. Which can be higher or lower depending on like how boutique you are in your like specific area of expertise yeah. and what the market's doing and, and all of those sorts of things. Okay. Um, but well, yeah, that's helpful at least. If you know, you know, in. roughly 40%, you can do some math and figure out how many of these things you can quote before you go out of business. <laughs> right. And how many people you need to actually deliver on them if you get them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That too. Okay. Another question I've had, and I, I've, I've wondered this for a long time, actually. Um, you see a, a tall building, a skyscraper, and um, in engineering, one of the things that we learn about is harmonic frequencies or resonant frequencies. And uh, that, that's a thing when it comes to uh, tall buildings, right? Ensuring that, um, I don't know, that the wind, the environment around them, what's going on inside is not going to cause some kind of resonant frequency and, and just catastrophically damage the building. 
how I've always wondered, how do you do the analysis on that? I mean, is it, is it just like a, um, a simulation tool in, in AutoCAD or something with, with all this stuff yeah. that goes into this, right? You've got the, the steel, like, um, skeleton, as you put it, you've got, uh, whatever materials on the outside, you've got all the glass, you've got wood in there somewhere, you've got flooring, you've got, you know, all that stuff. How do you do the simulation? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so I will give kind of like the big picture view of, okay. of how you do this. Uh, first, with the preface that, okay, so the the there are certain engineering firms out there, structural engineering firms, that actually have a specialty in what I would call like the mega high rise. So the, the really tall buildings you see in downtown New York, San Francisco, those sorts of buildings. And often they actually even have their own research and development people on staff with PhDs, you know, working on specifically modeling those types of buildings. Um, those are generally not the type of buildings uh, that I worked on. Probably the tallest building I've ever designed was 22 stories, which which is tall. That seems Don't pretty tall. Wrong, right? Yeah. Um, but just to give you perspective, because there are buildings, you know, hundreds of stories tall. Um, but so for when it comes to the like the wind forces on a building like that, uh, you there are what we call wind tunnel tests, where essentially there's a couple labs. I think uh, last I checked, there were like three uh, in the world <laughs> where you can once your your building is, you, you know, generally how it's going to be massed meaning like size, shape, relative to t topography, all of those things, because topo topography matters for how the wind interacts with the building as well, whether you're high or low, or there's a lot of changes in topography, because you can create this like wind tunnel effect, uh, which maybe some of our listeners may have experienced if you've ever kind of like gone down into the subway in a city, and all of a sudden you're like, whoosh, like you you feel all that wind going through. Um, so anyways, they will take, basically make a model of the building, and put it in the wind tunnel. They have like a wind tunnel room. Uh, you could Google this because there's there's some cool pictures of like how they how they do this. Uh, and they will essentially run a lot of different simulations with blasting wind at it from different directions and give you a output that you can use to design the building for the specific wind loads that will be produced on that building, which once again, are not just affected by the building shape itself, but also what's around the mm, building. Interesting, so yeah. for example, if you were designing a super tall building that was like in the middle of nowhere, there's nothing around that building to like dampen the wind coming at it. Like the wind's just coming full force. There's nothing that's going to like interrupt the wind coming there. Um, in, in, metropolitan areas, there's usually a lot of buildings around and depending on their size and shape and how close they are, they can actually produce, in some cases, they'll like kind of dampen the wind on the building, but then they can actually produce like cornering forces on particular parts of it where it's like, because they're pushing all the wind into this really small area, it's actually producing more force mm. on the building. Yeah. Um, and so the, the wind tunnel test gives us the loads uh, on that. And then to answer the modeling question, uh, there's a and, lot. And, and the model oh, that that's gotta be like yeah. a, a far scaled down model. What is it, like a, like a, I don't know, 100th size model or something, or how big are these models? Yeah. The ones I've seen were actually like a, a couple feet tall. Okay. Right? A couple feet. So like something that you could kind of 
you know, carry, carry around if you had to. <laughs> okay. And are they made out of like real materials, steel with uh, I don't know, brick or stone on the outside and glass and things like that? Or, or is it just mostly the shape that you're looking at? It's, it's mostly the shape. Okay. Um, I actually have never asked that question. What do you actually make the model out of? Um, but I do know it's not like steel and, and concrete and the exact, okay. because the weight, uh, a lighter structure will move more in wind, right? So if right. you think of, you know, stacking of a bunch of bricks and here comes the wind, it's not going to move as much. If you stack up a couple, you know, toilet paper rolls, yeah. my kids have done that experiment for school, then, you know, it, go, it goes right over. Um, and so with the wind tunnel test, they're more interested in the shape, the massing of, of how that goes around. Now, when it comes to the modeling part, though, you've got to know, how much does that building weigh? Uh, because uh, that has a huge implication on earthquake loads. Uh, mm. And so things that weigh more are going to have higher earthquake loads. Uh, and again, depending on where you where you are in the country, uh, you're at more you're at a higher risk for an earthquake. So let's say California <laughs> versus Florida. Um, and so all that goes into the actual modeling of we got the loads from the wind tunnel test to apply to our building. Well, now we actually need to design our building or bridge or, you know, whatever it is you are, are designing as a structural engineer, depending on what industry you're in. Um, and for that modeling, we use really sophisticated 3D programs, 3D software. Um, uh, engineers with a lot of experience are overseeing those projects. And so... Uh, we know how to kind of make sure that we're getting good output because we all know garbage in, garbage out, right? Right. <laughs> Any, I feel like every engineer has learned that the hard way in some way, shape, or form that they put junk into a program at some point and they're like, what's going on here? Um, and so uh, there are multiple ways to be like, to basically gut check and hand calc, okay, are we getting what we think we should? Uh, but we use a lot of, again, sophisticated 3D models, spreadsheets. Um, there, There is, at this point, there's almost always a 3D model of the building that doesn't just take into, it takes into the account the structural part for the modeling and analysis of it. But then there's, that model is brought in so that, you know, the mechanical and electrical and plumbing and the facade yeah. and all okay. of that is included and coordinated as well. Interesting. So there is some physical testing in uh, in terms of the wind tunnel, and then that data is used in conjunction with some very sophisticated three um, D modeling and, yeah. and simulation software. Very interesting. Okay. Well, um, I'm going to take just a very short break right now and share with the listeners that TeamPipeline.us is where you can learn more about how we help medical device and other product engineering or manufacturing teams develop turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines to characterize, inspect, assemble, manufacture, and perform verification testing on your devices. And we're speaking with Stephanie Slocum today, who is uh, a... Um, uh, structural engineer and we've we spent the first half of the podcast talking about structural engineering and i like to spend the second half talking about your current role which is as founder and ceo of engineers rising can you tell me maybe just a, a 30 second intro what is engineers rising or you know 60 second a minute two minutes whatever um how did you get into this and what is it that you do there okay great 
Great question. And I'm going to have a hard time keeping this down to uh, two to three minutes, 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll so, talk about it for a lot. Don't worry. You don't have to squeeze it all into the next couple oh, of minutes. Oh, thank goodness. Um, so I am on a mission to normalize women as leaders in the STEM fields. And that's ultimately what my mission is, what Engineers Rising does. Um, I noticed uh, coming up through my own career experiences uh, that I was often the only woman on my teams. Uh, and this was true even when I was fortunate enough to get to a, a place where I was being managed by other women. It still would often be the case that I'm in a design meeting, uh, you know, in a room of 50 people, and there's me and maybe two other people. And if I was lucky, one of them was some, they were technical people, right? Like they, it wasn't just like the person fetching coffee and things like that. Um, not that there is no judgment there if you are the type of person that loves to fetch coffee. Not. Just want yes. to make that really clear. So uh, I, I noticed all these things and then I started having kind of my own internal struggles along my career path. Uh, the experience of a going out on my first, like, first solo construction site visit. And I'd been talking to this contractor for months. Like he had to have known I'm a woman. Uh, but he was like general, genuinely perplexed with why a woman would want to be a structural engineer, be in the construction industry. And so uh, he, it was just like he really just did, couldn't understand why you would possibly want to do that. Um, I had people asking me, you know, how do you how do you manage to balance having three kids and an engineering career? And guess how many times my husband has been asked that question? Never. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Stuff like getting interrupted during meetings or just having uh, your competence questioned, you know, do you really know what you're talking about uh, in, a, in a noticeable way more often than other people with my same level of experience. And I thought it was me. So to give the listeners context, I graduated from college in 2002. Uh, and so, and I thought that I'm like, oh, the whole like women in STEM thing, like that was something my parents solved. Like that, that's not, we're in the, the new millennia. This is not an issue anymore. Um, and so I was pretty much completely blindsided by what was going on. And I think as a result of that, I'm like, it's me. I'm doing something wrong. There's something about me that's not screaming leader. Um, and even though I had the privilege of working with some really, really great people, like Things like this just kept on happening. Uh, and so I had to figure out how to navigate that for myself. Along the way, I had three daughters. Um, and I got to this point where I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm in this uh, engineering role where at that point I was uh, the level below ownership at the firm I was working at. So a pretty high, high role. But I'm like, there, I think I can have a bigger impact on the world than what I'm having. And I've always been hugely driven by having an impact in the world. Um, I'm also, I love to write, I love to read. Um, and so uh, I started writing a book, which ended up being called She Engineers. It was a complete side project, like in my non-existent free time. Um, and so like hashtag productivity tips, I have lots of those because I shouldn't have been able to write a book when I was working more than uh, full-time hours in my engineering job, uh, dealing with my youngest wasn't quite sleeping through the night yet, <laughs> all those sorts of fun things. And it took a year to write, but then I published it in January, 2018. Uh, and pretty quickly I got asked to come speak on this topic to young professionals, women's groups, 
um, just other uh, women in engineering, women in STEM groups. And I pretty quickly realized that like, I could keep on doing engineering, I could keep on doing stuff related to the book, but I was going to be mediocre at both if I attempted to continue to do both. Uh, and I like my family and I wanted to see them from time to time. So that that was playing into all this as well. Uh, and so for me, uh, what ended up happening was six months after the book was published, I resigned from my engineering job to jump into Engineers Rising full time, uh, where I have the best job in the world, uh, helping women in STEM navigate their STEM careers on their own terms. Um, but again, for me, it was a like, yeah, we had to get all our ducks in a row to be able to be able to do that. Um, but it's about how my mission in my career has always been to have the biggest impact I can, whether it be designing the engineering stuff uh, or doing what I do now with uh, career coaching and business coaching for women. Uh, and so it was a relatively easy decision for me to make this leap when that's my why. And so for anybody listening, if you're struggling, figure out what your why is and let that guide you. Well, I I imagine that if you were to ask, let's hope this is true, 99 out of 100 male engineers, do you think that women have a place in engineering? Do you think that women are every bit as capable as men are as engineers? They would all say yes. Yet your experience probably indicates that uh, although we as men probably believe this and, and, and state that openly, maybe there's something subconsciously going on with us that, that causes us to treat women differently within an engineering context. What, what are some things that, you know, we as men can be careful about as, as we're working with our, our uh, female counterparts? Yeah, such, that's such a fabulous question, Erin. And I, I want to answer that question, but before I do, I will, I, what we're talking about here is all the unconscious bias things that we have ingrained in us uh, from a very young age. And it's not that men have it and women don't or, or uh, somebody's at fault here or this person is a bad person. By nature of being human, we all have unconscious bias. Uh, and so I can share a story of a time a male coworker brought in uh, cookies into my office. And I'm like, oh, tell your wife thanks for bringing these amazing cookies into my office. Well, guess who actually made the cookies? Not his Not wife. The wife. He did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, um, I think part of the struggle with this is that. We don't want to talk about it because to talk about it, and we see this with both like gender issues, racial issues, um, you know, none of us went into STEM engineering technology because we really loved being around people. Or at least I know very few that were like, yes, I want to deal with conflict and having tough conversations <laughs> sure. uh, and navigating all that. Um, and then so when we, we get to a place and we're like, well, well, I'm, you know, I don't want to be perceived as sexist or racist or any of those things. So it's easier to just put this in the box and not talk about it. And then when we don't, when, then when we do that, what happens is uh, we start to join the statistics that show that like women are interrupted during meetings, for example, and this is true in virtual or in person, uh, three to four times as much as men are. Uh, anybody listening? Take a notebook into your next meeting and keep track. 
So that's not one making thing this right up. there. Don't interrupt. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and don't interrupt. <laughs> Again, it's not just a gender thing. Like we know a lot of people are not engaged with their work. And if they're not heard, if people don't feel like they're heard at work, they are uh, not going to be as active and doing as good of a job. Uh, there are really dollar amounts here when it comes to the business case related to keeping your workforce engaged. Uh, not, inter not allowing interruptions in meetings is a really, really low hanging fruit here uh, that will help women and will help everyone else as well. Um, other things uh, that, that we see is when, you know, when you hear the sexist or racist joke, speak up, uh, particularly if you are a white male. Uh, and I am, I know the viewers can't see me, so I am a cisgender white female. Uh, and so I have privileges there as well. Um, but when you are in a position, uh, a basically privileged position, whether it be by virtue of race or gender or power, like depending on your title, you have an obligation to call out things when you see them. So no, the women driver jokes are not funny. Um, and, and there's a lot of other, I don't know, snide remarks, those sorts of things. You, you know them when you hear them um, related to that. Uh, similarly, like no one wants to take notes in a meeting, yet women tend to be asked to do that uh, a lot more often than their male counterparts. If you are like in an academic setting, this could translate into uh, joining that volunteer committee that you are asked to join, but you know that's never going to get you tenure. It's never going to get you promoted. Um, and then making just making sure that all of that, what we call non-promotable work, <laughs> is distributed evenly. Um, so those, those are a, a quick couple of ways. Uh, we could talk for yeah. a couple hours on this one, Aaron. So, but I'm I wanted sure. to give you guys, give you some low-hanging uh, low fruit here for easy things that anybody can do, regardless of if you are the boss or if you are just starting out. Yeah, those are excellent suggestions. Thank you for sharing those. Um, how about as you've advocated for women in engineering, technology, STEM, has there been any like explicit pushback that you've encountered? Or for the most part, when you start talking about this, are, are people very receptive all across the board? It depends. Um, so no, I would not say that people are generally receptive all across the board. Interesting. Okay. Um, so uh, there's a couple of interesting situations I've run into. Uh, the first one was, I think this was the second talk I gave when I started the company. And I was asked to give a talk to a group of uh, mixed gender, mixed race, seniors, college students. Uh, and I came in to give a talk about basically how to make a really good career transition from student into your first couple of years in the industry to set yourself up for success long term. And as I was telling some of these stories about, you know, things that happened and not really knowing how to um, professionally self-advocate, stand up for myself in some of those early situations, I could tell from the faces of the people listening to these stories that they didn't actually, they believe the story happened to me they didn't think it was going to happen to them. Moreover, they didn't think that they would ever do that to someone else. And so I think that's some of the stuff. I encounter that a lot. This thought that, okay, if this hasn't happened to me or someone I know or someone I care about, then it doesn't exist. It's not a problem. 
Um, and we see this in the, the pipeline versus retention argument specific for women uh, as well that uh, there's a lot of folks who will be like, oh, well, the reason we don't have enough women in STEM is because, well, girls aren't interested in it. And so we just need to work on doing more outreach in high schools and colleges and all of those things. Um, and what they don't know is that if you went and looked up the statistics on this, we've actually increased, we've more than doubled the pipeline in the last 20 years, just since I graduated. However, we haven't actually budged the retention rate of women in engineering and STEM. And in some instances, so like in computer science and engineering, the number's actually gone backwards. So um, you're saying that yeah. we have twice as many women who are trying to enter the, uh, a technical yep. field, but uh, the, the, the number of women who stay in that field hasn't changed for, uh, I can't remember what you said, it was 20 About years 20 or something? years. So 20 it's years. gone wow. up, depending on your major, it's gone up a half to one percent, uh, which so that I mean yeah. that's almost saying that it's gone backwards because the ratio of women trying to enter to the ratio of women that are staying is is now um, far higher than it was before, which is the yeah. opposite direction that that <laughs> we, yeah. we wanted to go. Why do you think that is? Oh, how long do you have for an answer to that question? <laughs> so, so one of the interested, there's been uh, actually a couple of just like uh, large scale studies on this, some of them funded by the National Science Foundation, trying to figure out what is going on here. Um, and because if you ask someone who's not in STEM, oh, why are women not in, why are women coming into STEM and then leaving? Uh, nine times out of 10, and I have done this anecdotal experiment uh, with my relatives who aren't in STEM, they'll be like, oh, well, she's going to raise her family. And so that's why she's getting out of STEM. Well, it turns out at this point in time that men and women are leaving at similar rates for starting families. Uh, and so that's, that's not what's going on. Um, usually they're leaving to go to other industries. Uh, there's a statistic that, that one in 10 men are leaving engineering specifically after age 30, and one in four women are leaving engineering after age 30. So like, think about that for a moment. Like someone invests all that time and effort getting through college, a decade in their field, and then they're like, okay, this isn't for me. Uh, and usually they're going to other industries. Uh, as not surprisingly, the foundational skills you get in STEM are hugely valuable in financial sectors, for example, uh, because the way you learn to think, the way you learn to problem solve, that that is uh, very can be create a very lucrative place for you in other industries outside of STEM. Um, so, is it all bad for the women that they're leaving STEM? Absolutely not for them, um, but. I do think there are the the fact that when people are asked why did I leave work culture is the number one reason we can fix that what are um, so w work culture you say is the number one reason that, that women, women yeah. are leaving what are one or two of the biggest challenges that you hear from women that they're having in industry uh, struggling to find mentors and sponsors within their companies Interesting. Um, that is up there. And I would actually say, I think after Me Too happened, it actually got worse. Really? Yeah, because I think there is a, um, 
people are shying away from one-on-one -on -one mentorship, particularly uh. if there's a power, uh, there's a perception of a different power dynamic between, for example, the, the older male that is often in charge of the engineering organization and a younger female than there is between the older male and a younger male protege, rightly or wrongly. Um, is there, there seems to be that kind of perception challenge uh, when it comes to mentorship and especially sponsorship. Um, clearly define growth paths. And I could have mentioned this one earlier when we were talking about things people can do. Um, so work culture is first. The second reason why people leave is they couldn't see there wasn't a growth opportunity for them available there. Uh, and so what we often find is that uh, when people do not see a transparent promotion process, you know, when they have a perception, rightly or wrongly, that there is a lot of nepotism going on, uh, or people are getting promoted because they're playing the political game, not because they are the best person for that position, um, women, statistically speaking, tend to walk more with their feet when they encounter that. They don't say to themselves, oh, I just need to figure out how to play the game better. They're like, okay, F them going somewhere else. Um, and so I think those those two things, and again, mentors and sponsors and clear, transparent growth paths benefit every single person in your company if you actually want to retain and grow your people. Um, and so while women tend to kind of bear the brunt of this, uh, just because I think we hope things would have changed more by now than they have. Uh, it still benefits everybody to have all of these things kind of, you know, mentorship, sponsorship programs, uh, transparent hiring and promotion practices, those sorts of things. Okay. So I, I imagine that a lot of what you teach in Engineers Rising is, even though you're kind of focused on women in STEM, I, I imagine a lot of it is, uh, relevant for men as well. Uh, one of the things that you talk about, you just mentioned right now, is uh, helping your clients gain clarity about their careers. If if I were a new uh, client of yours and I came to you and said, Stephanie, I'm just I'm, I'm not sure where I'm going. You know, help me out here. What yeah. what is the process that you would run me through to help me get some clarity in in my career growth? Okay, awesome, awesome question. Okay, so the first thing we would do is we would have. A series and usually I have two of these and this is regardless of if the person signs up or not where we really talk through okay where are you in your career right now what do you like about your work what do you what do you not like about your work what in your past have you liked about your work um, and and here's why those questions are really important I want to pause here for a second uh, we have a we had a burnout epidemic before the pandemic happened and it's getting worse now. So if if someone is listening to this and those questions I just asked, what do you like about your work? And you can't come up with a single thing past or present that you like at work. That is a strong leading indicator that you are in burnout because that's what happens when you're in burnout all of a sudden. Uh, and it's usually not all of a sudden, it's over a length of time. Uh, it's things you used to enjoy, you no longer enjoy. And, you know, I can't find anything at all that I like about my work. Uh, and so once we get through those initial questions, uh, then we start digging into, okay, like, why did you go into this field? 
um, what, you know, if you could imagine your kind of perfect day, what would you like to be doing? What does that actually look like? And usually it takes a while to figure that out. Um, as, as STEM professionals, I've noticed that, and, and I have this problem myself, we're really good at pointing out all the reasons things can't work. We are really good at solving problems. We are really good that if you give me a whole bunch of constraints and parameters and you have to fit X into Y and we're not sure we can do that, like we can figure that out. But when it comes to imagining possibility for yourself, we really suck at it because we haven't exercised that muscle. And so really that is, I would say like the core of what good coaching, be it myself or anyone else out there, uh, does is it sees more potential and draws that out so you can see it than you might be seeing in yourself. Uh, and so, you know, once you dive into that and there's also kind of reflection exercises. So really understanding who you are with things like there's Clifton Strengths assessments, there's uh, Myers-Briggs, stuff it really depends on the client because uh in my case like your coaching should be as customized as as you are because we're all unique individuals and we all have specific needs in specific situations um and sometimes people come and they're like my question is do i should i stay in the industry or not like that's the fundamental question i'm trying to answer some people are like my job is terrible <laughs> i need to change it and sometimes that ends up to be the case and sometimes we're able to kind of job craft their job into a role that is better suited to them with a mind shift change. Uh, sometimes the answer is you really need to go start your own company, uh, which is why <laughs> I'm one of the uh, probably few few career coaches out there. I actually have a program to help people do that uh, because I ran through this myself where I saw an employee, I saw an entrepreneur as you had to be uh, Elon Musk, you had to be Steve Jobs, you had to be Bill Gates to start a company. You had to have some patents or some special skills or some awesome network or venture capital. And that's actually not the case, particularly if you want to be in professional services. Um, and so figuring out, like my process is very about much about figuring out what is best for you what the six how do you define success because some people define it with i want to be the boss and some people define it as i want to work 30 hours a week and have time with my family and do meaningful work and both are right it just depends on who you are uh, and so again my goal is always to make sure that that someone comes out of their experience with me uh, better and happier than they were before they before they met me. And I can yeah. Yeah, give you a whole bunch of logistics of, you know, very, uh, not surprisingly, my coaching tends to be very kind of like systematic and processed. Like we have very clear, here's what success looks like at the end. And here are the metrics we're going to do, uh, which is also unusual if you've gone into like the life coaching area. Uh, if you are comparing a life coach to like a career coach, those are two very different things. Sure. Okay, great. Well, I think we're, we're going to wrap it up here in just a minute before we do. Um, how can people get a hold of you? What, whether they just want to pick your brain about something or maybe they're interested in getting some career coaching. What's the best way to get a hold of you, Stephanie? Yeah. So come check out my website. It's engineers rising 
www.ncpsoftwarebank.com. We have a bunch of free blogs. Uh, if you want to see what sort of programs we have going on, I also do uh, free Zoom consultations. So there's a button there. You could just click and contact me uh, if you want to do that. Uh, you can also, I am pretty active on LinkedIn. So I am Stephanie Slocum PE. Uh, so I have a pretty open network. Feel free to connect with me there. And then you'll also see, you know, when I post on various things we're doing or new blogs and or all that sort of thing. Awesome. Well, this has been so interesting, Stephanie. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Aaron. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.